I have two, three announcements. One is uh, today we have a leaders meeting at 3.23. And second one, next week is our Eastside Academy brunch. And third is... Third is Kristen and I completely, absolutely forgot. We were supposed to have the EA offering, remember? And so if you have a contribution, if you can't make it to the auction, you'd like to contribute, and then they pull them all together, and hopefully if we have enough, if it's not like, hey, anybody want to match $67, which is what we want to go If we can come up with a better number than that, then they'll have a special matching at the auction where people can uh, match our gift and double it. So, which is what has happened the last two years. So if you have something, feel free to give it to your group leader or to me or to Sandy. Sandy, raise your hand. Sandy, raise your hand. Yeah. And we will, it will all hopefully flow downhill to me and I will walk it to the office today. Okay, yay! When you pray, when you fast. 
What that means is that it is not a mere suggestion. Jesus did not present an idea that he wants his followers to consider. He assumed that his followers all do these things. So the piety of giving is related to our property and is the discipline of generosity. Giving is an obligation to others who are in need. So it reminds us that what matters to God is people. So what do they do about giving? They announce their giving with trumpets. The announcing is with trumpets can be understood metaphorically and literally. Metaphorically, it means showy giving, publicizing your giving, something like tooting your own horn. <laughs> and literally speaking, during this period, the Jewish priests show a blue trumpet in the temple when uh, they collected funds for some special needs. Either way, it implies human desire for public approval or self-promotion. Jesus called it an act of hypocrites. The word hypocrite is from the Greek word hypocrites, which means an actor in the theater who is pretending to be someone that he is really not. This word is often used against the Pharisees in the New Testament. The number one reason non-Christians hate Christians is they think we are all hypocrites. Even though hypocrisy is not a Christian issue, but a human issue, still Christian hypocrisy is the worst kind of hypocrisy because God's name is at stake and it undermines Christ and the gospel. Then, what caused hypocrisy? It is pride. C.S. Lewis explained really well in his book, Mere Christianity, in the chapter on the great sin. So if you have this book, go home and reread this chapter. The religious, the religious hypocrites are not merely proud of being spiritual. They are proud of being more spiritual than others. It is a vital for pride to be above the rest. Louis said, pride is essentially comparative. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. <laughs> so when you go to the theater art museum, you see one side of the whole wall is dedicated to the names of the donors and the amount of money they donated. There's something within our nature that craves public praise and recognition. That is their reward. What Jesus said here is we, especially Christians, must be careful that pride doesn't influence or promote our giving which is phony devotion. So what is the right way to give them? Giving in secret. Don't even let your left hand know 
what your right hand is doing, which really means keeping your giving so sacred that even you yourself are hardly aware that you are doing anything at all praiseworthy. These are, are the perfect picture for it. This is what we are doing. <laughs> and this was we should it. The irony is irony of this passage is that if we give in secret by keeping up your anonymity, you can still take pride in that yourself. Oh nobody know, but I did it. Good job of not telling anybody. Then pat on my shoulder. <laughs> so what is Jesus saying is, when you give in secret, you got to forget about it yourself. Your self-centeredness, your self-centeredness, your self-consciousness, um, and self-praise. But how do you do that? Evangelist Oswald Chambers explained like this. Get into the habit of having such a relationship to God that you do good without knowing you do it. Then you will no longer trust your own impulse or your own judgment, but you will trust only the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And the mainstream of your motives will be the Father's heart, not your own. The Father's understanding, not your own. When once you are rightly related to God like this, he will use you as a channel through which his disposition will flow. So if you do that, God will reward you because he knows your true motive, your hearts and actions, and all the sacrifice that you have made. So what is this reward? Jesus doesn't promise a specific reward or mention a specific time, but we know that true God-motivated devotion molds us into the likeness of Jesus so that it brings us into deeper, intimate relationship with God. What is better reward than that? Uh, there are several other places uh, also mentioned about God's reward. Uh, Proverbs 19.17 uh, says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. And 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 11, Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. Okay, let's talk about prayer. Prayer is the doorway to intimacy with God. When we pray, we come into God's presence and have communion in conversation with God. So prayer deals with our soul and expresses our obligation to God. Verses 5 to 8 follow exactly the same pattern as the verses on giving. It describes their phony prayer first, and then Jesus tells tell them how to pray properly. The Jews had the three set times for prayer, morning, afternoon, and evening. At the appropriate time, the pious Jews 
were expected to stop whatever they are doing and attend to their supplication toward God. If they are not at home, they would pray at the temple or they could stop at local synagogue, which was always open for prayer. Apparently, what some Jews were doing that when the time to pray come, they would deliberately stand on a busy street for everyone to see. So these verses do not mean to prohibit public prayer. Jesus himself on occasion prayed in public. So it is about the attitude of pride can come into the act of prayer. Their motive and purpose were to impress others. Such a prayer also dishonored God because they used this spiritual prayer as a tool to show off their own pride. So what is the right way to pray? First, pray needs privacy. So let prayer be unobserved, undisturbed, uninterrupted, and unheard by others, and simply be alone with God. Jesus often went up to mountain by himself to pray. So if we have a privacy, we have a more uh, freedom in revealing our deeper thoughts and can have more intimate communion with God. Second, no more babbling. <laughs> Jesus gives two reasons why long prayers are to be avoided. First, that is the way pagans pray. Pagans believe that their prayer needs to be long so their God could learn all the details. The second reason is that unlike pagan God, our God knows everything that we need so before we even ask him. The fact that God already knows everything doesn't mean there's no need to pray but rather it encourages us to more freely talk to God about it. You know, just like um, you talk to freely or more, more frequently to your best friend who knows you so well, so sometimes he knows your needs better than you do. You know, how many times you heard from your friend, you know what you need right now? You know, that kind of thing. So some of you may wonder, hey, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 said, pray without ceasing. Isn't that contradicting with what Jesus just said here? Prayer without ceasing doesn't mean keep babbling. It means to keep praying regularly so that prayer should be a continuous, never-ending discipline of the spiritual life. Just like what Martin Luther said, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend clothes, mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Prayer should be brief, frequent, and intense. And then Jesus gave us model prayer to help us, which we call the Lord's Prayer. I will deal with that later. So 
let's look at fasting. Uh, fasting is denial of our physical need for food for, for a time so that we can totally focus on God. In the Old Testament, it was often a way of expressing grief or a means of uh, humbling ourselves before God. But in the New Testament, a fasting is associated with also grieving and seeking God's will. It was also means to grow close to God through mediating and focusing on Him. So fasting deals with our bodies and is our obligation to ourselves. So what did they do wrong on fasting? They disfigure their faces to show off how religious they are. It is another public show of self-promotion, not a sign of humility before God. So what is the right way to fast? Go ahead, take a shower, shave, brush your hair, front deodorant, and take care of the normal necessity of life so that there will be no outward appearance of fasting. Interestingly, in our days, it seems the most common thing about fasting is to announce to others that they are fasting and tell them about their fasting experience. But Jesus said, let this be between you and God. God sees in secret and rewards accordingly, just like giving and praying. So all these three illustrations show that these three religious activities are easily perverted into mere acts of religious showmanship to gain status and get attention, get the attention of others. Correct actions with wrong motives will not please God. The results of good work may be the same, but at the end of the day, what Jesus cares about is not only do what is right, but also do what is right for the right reason. So we have to ask, why are you doing what you are doing? The motive of the heart is the key. If we purify the why, and then the what will take care of itself. So Jesus uh, just gave us three examples, but this teaching is suitable for everything we do in our lives. Uh, many of you are doing a lot of things in the church, so when you are serving in a ministry, sometimes we feel like, hey, nobody cares what I'm doing, and nobody thank me. They don't treat me right, and where's my recognition? I don't need this. And then we quit. But no one else needs to know what good job we do because God knows. He sees everything. So first, good news is that Jesus promised that God will repay you. And second good reason is God rewards you as a father, a loving father, not a judge. 
So people always say, oh, you can please all the people all the time. So why don't we just focus on pleasing God instead? Isn't that easier? <laughs> okay, so verse 9 to 13 is known as the Lord's Prayer. Which kind of misnomer? It is not a prayer that Jesus prayed himself. It, is, it was a prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples as a model prayer. So, how do you know Jesus didn't pray this? Jesus himself could never have a prayer like verse 12, forgive our debts, because he is sinless. So if you really want to read Lord's Prayer, which Jesus prayed himself, you have to see John chapter 17. That is his prayer to God. This Lord's Prayer serves two purposes. First, it provides a model prayer to serve as a lesson in how to approach God and how to speak with Him. And second, it serves as an outline of the whole Christian life by providing some points of concern for the family of God. The Lord's Prayer can be divided into two. The first part has three petitions with the word yours, with the word yours, which are about God himself. The second part has three petitions with the word our or us. Okay. Okay. Which are for our needs. So let's see one by one. Verse nine. nine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing we notice here is that Jesus doesn't call God Lord or Master or Creator. He called God Father. God was referred to as the Father in the Old Testament only 15 times. It meant as the Father of the nation, nation of Israel, or the Creator, rather than the Father of an individual or of human beings in general. But in the New Testament, the word Father occurs numerous times. 134 times in the book of John alone. So Jesus was the first Jew in history to openly and frequently teach us to think of God as our Father. Jesus is the one and only son, but we are God's children by adoption through our faith relationship with Jesus. One of the greatest privileges of our adoption is being able to speak to God and relate to him as a good and loving father. The word father does not refer to sexual generation. God is an asexual being. The word father carries strong connotation of authority. It emphasizes God as the creator, the sovereign head of all creation, the provider of all life, and the great benefactor, and the covenant-making God. 
Uh, we live in a politically correct society. So some call our father, our parent, or our father and mother God. I'm not an expert on this issue, but I found an article which may help you understand what God as a father means in the Bible. The professor, Simon Chan, why we call God Father. Christians have good reason to resist gender-neutral alternatives in, the, uh, in Christianity today. I will show you this title later again, so you can write it down if you want. So in verse 6, Jesus just finished talking about having a private prayer to God in your own room by yourself, but he called our father, called father, our father, not my father. The word our indicates that we pray not simply as an individual, but as a part of the whole body of Christ. He reminds us that through our redemption and adoption, we are linked together as brothers and sisters in the community of faith. So when we pray, we acknowledge that he is not only my father, but also the father of every believer. The word our assumes that even when we pray in secret, intercession for our other Christians is included. Have you noticed that in the Lord's Prayer, the words I, me, my, mine, never appear. So from the beginning, the Lord's Prayer is intercessory prayer. The expression, our Father in heaven, not only tells us the place God resides, but also his absolute power and superiority. So when you see in the scriptures that, oh, God is in heaven, the meaning is usually that all things are under his authority. The world and everything in it is in his hand. Then, what does hallow be your name mean? Hallow means sanctify or holy. The word name refers to God's nature and character, not just personal name. Just like what Isaiah said, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So God is already holy. We do not need to pray that he will become more holy, please. What we ask here is that everyone, everywhere, recognize God's nature and character and treat him as holy. So, how to treat God as holy? Pastor John Piper explained this well. Hallowed be thy name is a request, not a, a declaration. We are not saying, Lord, your name be hallowed. We are saying, Lord, cause your name to be hallowed. That is, cause your words to be believed. Cause your displeasure to be feared. Cause your commandments to be obeyed. And cause yourself 
to be glorified. You hallow the name of God when you trust Him, revere Him, obey Him, and glorify Him. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Long time ago, Scott said, the kingdom of God is not a place or a system. It is whenever, wherever God is in charge. So what this verse means is that, first, let God's will and purpose and nature show through in every state of affairs because that is what it is for God to be king. It implies expanding God's kingdom. It implies bringing more and more people into intimate relationship with God and into the fellowship of the family of God. God wants us to pray that his will would be done, which doesn't mean he is not able to accomplish itself. God is more than able to do his will without our prayer or our cooperation. Yet, he invites us our participation of our prayers, our hearts, and our actions so that the earth would be filled with people who do the will of God the way the angels do it in heaven. Second, we live in in between time already, not yet kingdom. So what this verse said is a longing for final revelation of God's rule in the future. So here we are praying that the spreading God's word widely so that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would be reached so that Christ will return to the world for the second time. Third, this prayer implies not us trying to get God to do our will. Rather, it is voluntarily leaving our will to search and do the will of God. Obeying God's will means making God's top priority your top priority. So Dave Bruna sums up all these three petitions. In praying for the hallowing of God's name, we are praying mainly for faith. In praying for the coming of God's kingdom, we are praying mainly for hope. In praying for doing of God's will, we are praying mainly for love. In, uh, in a Trinitarian way, we seek for the hallowing of the name of God the Father, for the coming of the kingdom of God's Son, and for doing of God's will by the power of His Spirit. First lesson. Give us today our daily bread. Now we move to the second part of three petitions, which deal with our particular needs, both physical and spiritual, which show our complete dependence upon God for everything. When Jesus spoke of bread, he meant real bread as a representative of food in general for our physical needs in life. There was a time our physical body was regarded as evil 
and unworthy of any respect whatsoever. So only fathers, church fathers, and theologians cannot believe Jesus speaking about just mere, you know, everything just like this mere bread is not even significant bread in such a spiritual prayer like this. So they interpret this bread as a spiritual bread. Like this bread means communion. This bread means Jesus himself. This bread means the word of God, so on. But this bread here means physical bread for physical people. God created human beings with body, both the physical as well as spiritual aspect. So we need to feed our bodies and respect our bodies and take good care of our bodies. When 5,000 are hungry, Jesus commanded his disciples to give them something to eat first. Jesus' first concern is our survival. So we have a right to pray our own survival. Give us a bread to keep us going. So this petition has several significant meanings. First, the term bread stands for a basic bread, not cake or steak. It's a prayer for the need, not the want. It emphasizes that we pray for what we need day by day. We are asked for what is needed for each particular day. Just like a daily manna God provides in the desert. This is consistent with verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow. This does not mean we do not think about our future or make plans and prepare for it, but it means that we serve God and connect with God in the present, which the word today implies. Third, this petition asks God to give bread to us, not to me, which means as we pray for our needs, we are also to focus on the needs of others. We live in a fallen world where Economic distribution is out of balance. So for us, I assume, for us who do not need to worry about our daily bread, then this prayer for our bread should be a prayer for their bread. And that is why some said this petition is a perpetual call to social discipleship. Verse 12, and forgive us our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors. The first part of three petitions stand alone, but the second part of three petitions have connecting ends to bind them together. So give us a bread and forgive us and lead us from temptation. Indicating that we need all three of these together equally and daily for our well-being. The word that refers to sin. But the problem of this verse is that we ask God to forgive our sin 
and we forgive our debtors, which seems like if we forgive others, we somehow merit God's forgiveness. I don't know about you, but it takes a lot of nerve to come to God and say, hey, forgive me, because I have forgiven him. But God's forgiveness is not grounded on the fact that we forgive others. We are forgiven because God's grace, even though we did not deserve it. We are forgiven because of death of his son on the cross, even though we did not earn it. We are forgiven not just seven times, but 77 times over again because of God's faithfulness. The word as here is comparative. It means like, just as, in the same manner. So what Jesus means here is that we are to pray to forgive others in the same manner that you have, we have been forgiven. Which means we are to forgive others graciously, even though they do not deserve it, just like we didn't. Freely, we don't make them earn it, just like we didn't. And faithfully, not just seven times, but 77 times over again, just like we have. It is through God's forgiveness for us that we learn how to forgive. God's forgiveness in us and through us and flow out of us to others, just like we love others because he loves us first. So if we are aware of our own experience of forgiveness, then we are, able, we are able to forgive others. But if we are not aware of our own experience of forgiveness, we have a hard time forgiving others. So when we ask God to forgive us, we should think about not just thankfulness for his forgiveness, but also how to share his forgiveness in our dealing with other people. Forgiveness is such an important topic, so Jesus further explained forgiveness in verse 14 and 15, which honestly can be more confusing to understand. For if you forgive the other people when they are sinned against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It gave me so much headache. <laughs> These verses <coughs> sound like our own forgiveness is based on our forgiving others. But we already know that we don't earn God's forgiveness by being forgiving. When we say when we have Jesus as our Savior, all our sins are forgiven. And we know that we are eternally saved. So what Jesus is talking here is not about forgiveness that we receive in salvation, but about the forgiveness for our daily sin we are committing. So daily sin 
always put a distance between us and God and prohibit us from having a right relationship with God. But when we ask for God's forgiveness for our sins and forgiveness is granted, the proper relationship with God restored. So when God grants forgiveness, we have to respond. If you don't respond, it's as if God never acts. So when your heart becomes softened and you are gracious and forgive those who have hurt you, just because you know that God has been gracious to you and has forgiven you, it shows that you get it. It shows that you understand what forgiveness is all about. On the other hand, if you say, I cannot do this, I cannot forgive them, then it shows that you probably never really got it yourself in the first place. Or God's grace is poisoned by your own bitterness. Either way, we cannot maintain a right relationship with God. Asking for God's grace for forgiveness of our sin, all the while withholding forgiveness from someone else, is hypocrisy. You know what God's, you know, Jesus said about hypocrisy before? The issue here is not what can I get God to do, but what God has done and what can I do now because of what he has done. And 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. So whether um, these verses are speaking of a tit-for-tat kind of relational forgiveness between God and us, or whether it is a statement that unforgiveness is a sign of an unbeliever, the main point is the same. We should forgive others because God has forgiven us. It is wrong for someone who has truly experienced God's forgiveness to refuse to forgive others. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The final petition is to pray that God not lead us into a place of trials that would be so severe to bring about the fall into sin and have a victory over all the evils, like the evil one means, like evil thoughts or evil people or Satan himself. I think last time Krishna mentioned a lot about temptation. So if you missed that session, please review. Uh, the familiar endings for the dynasty kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is missing from the oldest manuscripts of the gospel of both Matthew and Luke. It was probably added later to make the prayer liturgically complete. And verses 19 and 24 focus on right action and using money. Jesus instructs us not to place to temporal, material things 
in the first place. So we must have a proper perspective regarding the things of the world. Money is an excellent, excellent servant, but it is a terrible master. So don't let it become your master. And verses 25-33 focuses on our specialty. What's our specialty? Worry. <laughs> My best friend's nickname from uh, junior high in Korea is A.W. Always worry. <laughs> we always say A.W. Do you know that a worry is a form of control? We know that worry cannot change anything and make an impact, but if we don't worry, we feel like things are going to out of control. So we worry to try to control the uncontrollable. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but we still do it. I heard once a psychologist did a TED talk about, um, he said, worry happens when your body and mind are not at the same place at the same time. So your body's here, at this place, on as well, right now, but your mind is somewhere else. Is it? Somewhere else? So his point is focus. Focusing on what you are doing right now. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 34. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. So don't borrow tomorrow's worry today. Just focus on what you are doing at every moment with your body and mind all together. So if we have any remedy for worry, please share with others. We need that. Thank you. Oh, this is the, um, the article that I mentioned earlier. So if you want to write it down, you can write it down.